Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 78 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jane Yolen, author of more than 300 books for children and adults. One of her newest projects is a pair of graphic novels called Foiled and Curses Foiled Again, about a teenage girl who discovers that her magic fencing gear lets her see and do battle with the invisible fairy creatures that haunt New York. Then stick around after the interview as author and fencer Kat Howard joins us to discuss sword fighting. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jane Yolen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so one of your new projects is a pair of graphic novels called Foiled and Curses Foiled Again. So just how did those first come about? Years and years ago, I was a college fencer. And I had a fencing foil that after I graduated from college, I I had with me. You know, I took with me to my apartment in New York City. And I, I had a date in Grand Central Station with someone carrying my fencing foil and lost it Hmm. in Grand Central Station. And years later, fast forward to a granddaughter who was taking fencing. And I tell her this story and she says, oh, can you write a short story about that? So I started to write a short story and the short story stalled. Meanwhile, my agent had introduced me to a new up-and-coming editor of graphic novels uh, was starting a line for the Macmillan Group. And when I told him the plot of this aborted short story, he said, write up what you have, give me a proposal, I love it. And that's how it started. And then, so what was the creative process? I mean, did you write a script, and were you involved with the artwork at all? Just how did that work? Well, the first thing I did was to contact my friend Neil Gaiman and said, <laughs> send me a manuscript so that I would know what they look like because the process of writing, the the look of the manuscript is as different from a novel manuscript as it would be from a play or a movie script. And I realized how, very quickly, how um, interdisciplinarian it is. You have to work very closely with the artist. You have to tell the artist what's in your head, how you see the finished book, and he was someone who had already done a number of graphic novel projects and comics, and so, in a sense, he taught me a lot. Could you give an example of a specific thing that the two of you worked out together? Well, very often, I wanted a lot of close-ups, so that at the beginning of Foiled, and the beginning of Curses Foiled Again, we're sort of close up with Alira, and she's breaking that fourth wall. She's looking out at the reader and saying, this is who I am. This is what I think. And, you know, he said, we've got to get her moving. We've got to get her doing stuff, not just turning and cocking her head. Uh, so in Foiled, uh, why did you decide to make the character colorblind? Just like the old... Um, Wizard of Oz. I wanted everything black and white, and then when she saw the fairies, a burst of color. As I was going through it the second or third time, the revisions, it occurred to me it didn't make much sense unless she was colorblind. Hmm. 
Otherwise, why is she, who is really our eyes here, why is she not seeing things in color? Why is everything in black and blues and gray tones? Did it, was there any pushback on that, or did everyone love the idea? No. The editor thought that was great, and she was tough to please. She had me revise the book seven separate times, and the seventh time I sent it in, and I was waiting to hear from her, figuring it was going to be another seven times before we got there. I came home, and there was a message on my answering machine, and it said, Oh, Jane Yolen, oh, Jane Yolen, you are so good. (laughs) So good. And that's how I knew that she had accepted the manuscript at last. Mm-hmm. And I kept the message for about a month and a half. And my oldest granddaughter, who was living with me at the time, um, dumped the message. Oh. <laughs> I, I used to listen to it when things weren't going well. Uh, so I thought Foyle did a really good job of portraying a contemporary American teenager. Uh, and, you, you know, you just mentioned that your uh, granddaughter had been living with you. Is, is the character based on her at all or is it based on someone else you know? It's based somewhat on her younger sister, who was the fencer. Mm. Um, Glendon at that time, who was living with me, was already out of college. So her younger sister was still in elementary school, but with um, delusions of teenhood. So Madison Jane, who was the fencer, Madison, was the one, and the first book is dedicated to her. Uh, so in what ways do you think uh, teenagers' lives have changed since you first started writing? Oh, gosh. I first started writing in the 60s. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of change, a lot more openness about all sorts of things, including sexual matters, um, including whatever they're into, especially now that they can fill out everything onto the pages of Facebook or whatever. There's absolutely a no understanding of privacy or any dividing line between what one thinks and what one says. Do you think that young adult literature is doing a good job of keeping up with that reality? Some of it. Some of it is still mired, like Stephanie Myers is still mired in, um, I'd say, the 1950s. Harry Potter, um, maybe the 1970s. But then there's a lot of stuff that is really Holly Black, Books are very definitely now. Francesca Lydia Block, definitely now. David Lubar, definitely now. In the 1950s, 60s, when I was growing up and then first writing for young people, there were hardly any teenage books. And the ones that were out there were the Sweet 16 kind of teenage books. There wasn't anything really revelatory or hard-hitting. And in the 1950s and 60s, when I was growing up, there weren't any people of color who were great heroes in the books. There weren't people of um, different gender choices in the books. There weren't girls being the great heroes in the books. A lot of change has happened since then, which has also started its own counter changes. You know, there's been a lot of um, backlash. Well, you mentioned that there's been this backlash, and I saw that uh, one of your books was burned on the front steps of the Kansas State Board of Education. Uh, yeah, Kansas, Kansas City. City. Board of Ed- yep, yep. 
but that was that was a while ago. That was twenty years ago. But what was the what was the situation with that? Well, it had a gay man in it, who was one of the heroes. It was taken out. I think it was by the Fred Phelps people, and hmm. they took out my book, uh, Magic Johnson's book on AIDS, uh, a book about gay men and women in history who had done important things in history. And they brought along a hibachi, put the hibachi on the steps of the Board of Education, took the books out of the library, and burned them. Well, so you mentioned that was 20 years ago. Does that sort of thing still happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, we still have, especially with, you know, Tea Party um, or the um, really right-wing zealots uh, of one kind or another who feel that the way uh, that you protest is to not say, I don't want my child to read this, but I don't want your child to read this either. And that happens very often at the school board level where they go in, people go in and they insist that books are taken out of school libraries. And very often what happens is they have a town meeting or they have a, an educational board meeting where people can come and, and vent. And then very often the book is returned to the shelf. But what happens afterwards, someone from the administration, maybe the principal, maybe some other kind, maybe the superintendent of schools, comes to the teachers, the librarian, and says, look, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money on this process. Be a little more careful next time. It's okay, we won, we won the battle, but don't use that book again. Don't use books like that again. We're not going to fight this battle for you next time, is what they're hearing. So when one of your books is being attacked like that, is there anything that you as an author can do? You can write to the teacher or the librarian or the school in support. You can, if you live close by, go physically and support them. You can write a piece for the Huffington Post or the the New York Times or or your local newspaper or go and get interviewed by their local newspapers. Put it out on Facebook or Twitter these days. Get other people, other other authors, other illustrators, other readers, other librarians and teachers to show support. Make sure that the ALA, the American Library Association, knows about it because they've got a huge uh, and important committee on books that have been censored or banned. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking if someone burned one of my books, I just might go burn their house down. Do you think <laughs> that well, I'm I'm enough of a Quaker not to want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm enough of, of a snark to want to go and uh, say a lot. Uh-huh. Okay, so you mentioned Harry Potter, and uh, on Wikipedia they quote a 2005 interview in which you said that Harry Potter seems somewhat reminiscent of your novel Wizard Hall, and that if J.K. Rowling would cut you a large check, you would cash it. So I was just wondering if she ever sent you a check. No, no. I'm I'm pretty sure she never read my book. You know, we were both using tropes, fantasy tropes, the wizard school, the pictures on the wall that move. I, I mean, I happen to have a hero whose name was Henry, not Harry. Uh, he also had a redheaded best friend and a girl who was also his best friend, though my girl was black, not not white. And and there was a wicked wizard who was trying to destroy 
the school who had used who used to have been a teacher in the school. But those are all fantasy tropes. And I was making a joke. It was in context with talking about how we all stand, you know, on the the shoulders of giants, how we all borrow from the best and that we probably had borrowed from the same places. And I joked and I said, if she wants to, to cut me a rather large check, I would be absolutely pleased. <laughs> well, that, that context is mysteriously absent from the Wikipedia page. Maybe somebody should uh, <laughs> amend that. Well, you know, never mind. It's, it's really pretty silly anyway. But I mean, that must just drive you crazy then when people uh, say, oh, J.K. Rowling, she was the one to think of the wizard school idea, and that's why it was such a big success. There's even a, a book that came out way before hers where children go off to um, a witch school or a wizard school by going on a mysterious train that comes in that no one else can see except, the, you know, at, at, at a major British, uh, I don't know if it's Victoria Station or King's Cross. These things are out there. Diana Wynne-Jones had a wizard school, for goodness sake, years before the Christomancy uh, book. This is not new. And it's one thing for kids not to know it. It's another thing for librarians to go, oh, this is new. Oh, my gosh. Look at those wonderful, wonderful, funny names for candies. I mean, had they not read Charlie and the Chocolate <laughs> Factory or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? It's a very British thing to do. Well, is it just the luck of the draw then, do you think? Or why was Harry Potter so much more high profile than a lot of these other wizard school books? You know, if we understood that, we'd all be gazillionaires. It was a phenomenon, and a phenomenon by nature cannot be expected, cannot be explained, and cannot be redone. Goodness knows, publicity departments and publishing companies have tried forever to make it happen. You can't make a popular culture thing just happen. Uh, speaking of popular culture, uh, Madonna, back in 2004, wrote a children's book, and she explained her motivation as, quote, I'm starting to read to my son, but I couldn't believe how vapid and vacant and empty all the stories were. There's, like, no lessons. There's, like, no books about anything. Yes, so, and... she, so she wrote a series of vacuous and vacant books <laughs> for <laughs> children with uh, morals that hit you over the head. Every star thinks that writing children's books is easy. And for them, in some ways, it is because, one, either they get someone to write it for them or they write it themselves and it's gaslight. Two, they can have a big sell-through at the beginning because it's the star power that does that. But only a couple of the the big names, um, stars, have actually had books that backlisted well because they were actually well-written. Uh, Julie Andrews had a couple. Um, Alan Arkin had one, and um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has had four or five picture books, children's picture books, and she takes it quite seriously. Well, in in this article, they quote you as saying, I've been thinking about getting out my pointy bra and, and brushing up <laughs> on my singing and dancing because there's no good pop music out there. Yeah. yeah it's, people really going to pay a lot of money to see me do that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, I could become a, an internet sensation <laughs> if 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 Gangnam Style can be. Why not me, right? <laughs> uh, so I saw on your blog that you were recently in Minnesota to give a talk about religion in children's books. What sort of things did you talk about? I was asked to talk about 
religion in books. I was supposed to do it at a multi-church, synagogue, mosque kind of thing that they have every year. And basically, I was talking about books that I said, not that promulgated religion, not that sometimes even talked about religion, but talked about the numinous, talked about the moral underpinnings of society. Books like The Giver uh, by Lois Lowry, a book like War Horse, books that in any other context you could call religious, except that they're not talking about how to worship in a particular way. Well, I mean, one of the things I really like about fantasy and science fiction is it seems to me that it does offer this sense of the numinous and the transcendent that I think is just Absolutely. innate, Absolutely. but it mm-hmm. doesn't have the same sort of sectarian problems or, uh, you know, the values can evolve more than it can with a traditional religious text. Sometimes in science fiction, though, science becomes what religion is in some books. And sometimes there is a heavy moralistic flavor, especially in the earlier science fiction and the earlier fantasy. I think, though, we have grown into this wonderful storytelling that just absolutely can't be beat these days. I think some of the stuff that's coming out under the aegis of young adult or fantasy um, or science fiction these days just stunning stuff. So I don't know if you saw this, but somebody there was a news story recently about how somebody sent an angry letter to fantasy author Scott Lynch, and this letter said, quote, your characters are unrealistic stereotypes of political correctness. Real sea pirates were vicious rapists and murderers, and I'm sorry to say it was a man's world, and it is unrealistic wish fulfillment for you and your readers to have so many female pirates. And I saw in an interview that your first book was actually a nonfiction book about female pirates, so I was just wondering what you thought of that. Yes, and I've written so far three, three and a half books with female pirates in them. Yeah, they, they were more of an anomaly. They were fewer female pirates than they were male pirates, but the world's greatest pirate was a female, Madame Ching, who had, I don't know, 20,000 boats and, or maybe it was 5,000 boats and 20,000 men under her control in the China Seas in the 19th century. There were women pirates. It's undeniable. Some of them were actual queens who had navies under their command. Some of them were running uh, pirate syndicates. Lady Killigrew in, in England did that. Some came from a pirate family. That would have been Granny O'Malley in Ireland, who actually um, had a, a sit-down with Elizabeth I, who wanted her to give up her pirate ways. Why do you think there's just this general problem with people not understanding uh, women in all these different roles throughout history? Yes. Well, because some of them, some of their roles were greatly hidden over the last three or four centuries. So the books that were written were not written about them, or the stories that were told were not about them. Or people would say, well, this really didn't happen. And this person, for whatever reason, is saying this really didn't happen. Yes, the majority of Pirates, in general, were thieves and cutthroats and people who could not fit into a general community without causing mayhem. On the other hand, pirate boats, for the most part, 
were much more democratic than the English Navy. Most pirate boats, you could vote the captain out. Uh, you would get shares, large shares of the um, the proceeds. It was divided pretty equally. When men came onto a pirate ship, they signed articles which uh, spelled out exactly uh, what is punishment for. In some instances, it was punishment if you hurt any captives. It was punishment if you um, sexually abused any captives. This was all spelled out in the article. I think speaking of women in, in unexpected roles like that, you also have a book called Queen's Own Fool. Could you just talk about that? I was wandering around with my husband and I think some friends would come to visit us in Scotland. We had gone to Stirling Castle to show them. Stirling Castle was slowly being tarted up. It had been pretty much of a ruin and it was slowly being brought back. And so whoever was the curator had um, started putting up little signages. And one said, Mary Queen of Scots had three female jesters. I was stunned. I didn't know there were female jesters, much less Mary Queen of Scots had three of them. And it started me thinking about a novel about Mary Queen of Scots jesters. And I started researching it with a friend. We didn't know very much about them. One was called Jardinier. Remember, she was French. One was called Jardinier. One was called Le Fou. And one, I can't remember what it was. But they clearly were three different kinds. Uh, more or less, we decided, the three different kinds of fools that normally a royal personage would have. One would be the um, jester, the one who was allowed to say things that could puncture pomposity and could say things to the king or queen or the prince or whoever they were serving without fear of being taken out and, and had their throat slit. Other people couldn't say those things. The second kind was very often a dwarf or somebody badly handicapped. For some reason in the Middle Ages, they found this sort of person extremely funny. Um, just because of how they looked and how strangely they acted. And then the third we decided would be, uh, because of whatever the name was, and I've lost it right now, would be less of a fool and more of a teacher, perhaps a tutor of some kind. But along the way, we discovered that there were a lot of people who had female fools. Queens, especially, would have female fools because they didn't want to have males in their entourage. So you, you referred to the seven gaunt cows that uh, currently afflict the publishing industry. Uh, you want to just talk about what you meant by that? That's based on the biblical story of Joseph in Egypt interpreting the Pharaoh's dream. The Pharaoh dreamed seven beautiful cows. And then he dreamed that seven gaunt cows came and devoured the seven beautiful cows. And Joseph interpreted this to mean that right now we are having seven years of plenty, but soon there will be seven years of famine. If we plan now and put 
away great stores of the excess that we have, when those years come, we will be ready for them. This is a prophetic dream, he told the Pharaoh. And that's what they did. The problem for publishing now is that those seven or ten or twenty or however many years of enormous growth and enormous monetary rewards has basically come to an end. Much of it due to um, really stupid business practices and the rise of the internet and the ebook and people downloading free books uh, and piracy. Well, I guess I actually have the list that you gave of the seven gaunt cows here. Maybe I'll just, we could just run through them quickly. Please do, because it, that's such an old piece, I don't remember <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, so you said multinational companies, Barnes & Noble, Thor Power Tool Amendment, zero dollars to school libraries, overproduction of books, television-driven merchandise, and the supersaturation of slush piles. Right. And see, none of that says e-books. You know, and piracy, that's the last thing. Do you want me to go over those one at a time? Well, or maybe pick one or two that you want, if you'd like to elaborate on them. Well, the multinationals means more publishing in fewer hands. This means that they're looking for a particular kind of book, uh, one that's going to sell very well. So the small, important literary novel or the small, important book of poetry is not going to get published except maybe privately or in smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller companies with fewer and fewer outlets because the big guys, and we've just seen now Random House and Penguin are about to amalgamate. They don't allow within their company, they don't allow editors to go to an auction against one another for a particular new book. If one person in the company has turned down the book, it's considered dead at that company. No one else is allowed to look at it. So fewer and fewer outlets for authors and illustrators and bookmakers. The slush pile has to do with the ease with which you can now, with a single tap of your finger, send out a manuscript to 20 places at the same time. And so everybody's doing that. Instead of having your manuscript go to one place at a time, which takes about three or four or five months before you hear, it's going to a lot of places at the same time. That seems to be good from the author's point of view. But what actually it means for the editors is that they are getting, since this person can send it to 20 places at the same time, they're getting everybody sending them one of the 20 manuscripts. So their piles of slush, of unsolicited manuscripts is higher than ever. Their response to that has been, and slush means unsolicited, in other words, not from a known writer or a known agent or somebody's mother's best friend. But that has meant that many publishers now refuse to read any unsolicited slush manuscripts at all. Uh, so given all the problems in publishing, uh, how do you feel about your kids following you in the business? Uh, my three children all write children's books. Um, my son Adam also writes adult books. Um, I wish they'd get real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they all do it. They all do something else, too. My daughter, Heidi, is also my PA. 
she organizes me. My son Adam is a professional musician, a web designer, a poker player, and a novelist. And he also is a composer and writes lyrics. Uh, my son Jason is um, an award-winning uh, photographer. He does he illustrates children's books with his photographs, but he also is writing magazine articles and is about to write his first book along with his brother and sister and me for National Geographic. Well, so would would you say then to all the aspiring writers out there that they should develop a sideline in a more respectable field like poker playing? (laughs) Yes, or marry well. (laughs) (laughs) Or have rich parents. Uh, So you recently became the the first woman to ever give the Andrew Lang lecture at St. Andrews University. Can you tell us about that? Well, Andrew Lang was an amazing late 19th, early 20th century writer. He had written essays, he had written short stories, he had written poetry, novels. He even worked on a novel with H. Ryder Haggard, who was a friend of his. But what he was most famous for, it turned out, was a series of 12 books that he actually didn't write. Those were the um, the color fairy books, the blue fairy book, the green fairy book, the lilac fairy book, the red fairy book, the orange fairy book, etc. The not-so-hidden secret was that it was really his wife who had done most of the retelling of the stories or the translations and a sort of cadre of other women who did it. He simply edited it, and because he was a very well-known folklorist, they used his name to front the books. And he had an attachment with St. Andrews, Scotland. He'd gone to university there. He had been, I think, a um, um, like a trustee there for a while. And he lived there. He lived in St. Andrews in the wintertime in summer in London, which is a very bizarre way of doing it, actually. Uh, London is vastly too hot in the summer, and St. Andrews is vastly too cold in the winter. And there's a... Um, a street named after him. He's buried in St. Andrews, etc. And after his death in 1912, they started a lecture series in his name. Each person who gave a lecture had to lecture on something that Andrew Lang was interested in. And since he was interested in, in everything, you know, historical things and poetic things and literary things and folkloric things, it was very easy to get people to do the lecture. And the lectures have been going on since 1927. Not every year. There have only been 22 lectures. But they included people like John Buchan, who wrote 39 Steps, a lot of academics. And in 1939, a month after I was born, the lecture was given by an Oxford don named J.R.R. Tolkien. He talked on fairy stories became a very famous essay on fairy stories that was, for me, one of the um, iconic pieces that I read when I was first getting interested in folklore. And lo and behold, last spring, they asked me if I would give the next Andrew Lang lecture. And I had just finished doing an introduction for the Folio Society's um, elegant, expensive, illustrated version of the Olive Fairy book. And I was thrilled. They brought me over to give a lecture. And 
I was told I was the first woman since 1927 to give a lecture. I mean, what do you make of that being the, the first? Do you just have any thoughts about that? Uh, I had a lot of thoughts about that. Like, do you know who you missed? Mm -hmm. Isaac Dennison and Thorne Neil Hurston and, and uh, Angela Carter and, um, you know, on and on and on who have died. You also did not ask A.S. Byatt or Marina Warner or uh, Maria Tater or any of the Catherine Briggs who died, the great woman of British folklore. I mean, it's astonishing to me who they didn't ask. That they asked me was a great honor, but the honor was all to me. Um, I'm not sure I brought any honor to them. Yeah, it, seem, it seems especially bizarre that over the course of 90 years, they, they never ended up having a woman, especially given the fact that, as you said, uh, his wife actually is the one that was uh, uh, had written the, the books that he's most famous for. I did point this out in my <laughs> lecture. <laughs> I did also offer them some names that they might uh, think of, of having, including Terry Windling and uh, Catherine Langrish and... Uh, Elizabeth Ween and people like that. So do you imagine that there's someone who was just born who will grow up reading your lecture the way you grew up reading Tolkien's? Well, one could devoutly hope so. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, that pretty much does it for our questions. So just to wrap things up, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Let's see. I ha I'm hoping that I'll do a third uh, foiled book, probably called On Guard, they have not signed up for it yet. A lot depends on how well the second book does. I'm working on a um, Hansel and Gretel uh, as twins uh, in the Holocaust. It's called The House of Candy. Uh, my son Adam and I are working on a trilogy for upper-middle grade kids called The Sealy Wars, and the first book, The Hostage Prince, will be out this fall. I have a book called Trash Mountain, which is a talking animal, a novel for kids about the war between the red squirrels and the gray squirrels, which is pretty brutal, actually. The war, that is. The gray squirrels can outfight, can have more babies than the red squirrels. They also carry a virus that doesn't affect them but kills the red squirrel. This is true. This is all true. This is why the red squirrels are dying out. But what they don't know, the actual red uh, gray squirrels, are that they are black squirrels coming, and they are bigger and feistier and can outfight uh, and, are, and are not affected by the virus. So the grays will probably have their comeuppance at some point. Anyway, that was the basis for my um, my writing the book, but it's not about the actual war. It's about talking animals. Any any uh, any short stories coming out? Maybe in an anthology in February about. Uh... <laughs> Is that the Oz anthology? Yeah. yeah, Oz reimagined. I am going to have a story in Oz reimagined called "Blown Away," which uh, takes place in um, in Kansas. A re, sort of a reimagined Kansas in which, um, well, I'm not going to give it away, but it has circuses and free, a freak, a couple of people from a freak show and, uh, 
and not one but two um, twisters and uh, a couple of surprises, especially what happens to Toto. <laughs> All right, great. So I think we should probably start wrapping this up. So, okay. uh, Jane Yolen, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Glad to be here. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jane Yolen for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be talking about sword fighting. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Kat Howard. Her short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Lightspeed, Apex, and Subterranean. And she trains with the Twin Cities Fencing Club. So Kat, welcome to the show. Hey, it's nice to be here. And so I think just to start out, I'd just like to talk about Kat, what is uh, sort of your background with fencing? Could you just talk a little bit about how you got into it and what kind of stuff you do? I fence uh, the modern competitive foil. Um, There's three weapons in modern fencing, and I only compete in one of them. My interest started when I was really, really little, like three or four years old. And I saw a cartoon of Zorro, and I loved the swooshing sound that the blade made when he carved Zs (laughs) into things. Um, And I expressed that love by drawing Zs all over my mother's walls. (laughs) Um, And she decided that maybe we could look for something that was a little bit more constructive to do with that. And Mm. so we looked for fencing lessons. And I was a little bit too young at the time. And we moved around a lot. But I started training pretty seriously in high school um, and then competed in college. I was part of the University of Texas Fencing Club. And I'm currently with the Twin Cities Fencing Club, as you mentioned. So. I mean, because I actually I did fencing in college, although it was pretty low quality because when I when I was a freshman, there was a guy who was a senior and he was the one guy in the fencing club. And then, you know, he graduated. So we were kind of running the fencing club after that. And, oh, that's awesome. And nobody like knew anything about fencing. Like, <laughs> nobody knew how to actually fence. Like we had all the equipment, but we didn't have any we didn't have any techniques or anything. Oh, and, no. So we basically just, I mean, we sort of forced around with the equipment and stuff, but it was, I didn't, you know, we weren't at a very high level or anything. But so everyone, you know, all the new recruits who would join, I would say, you know, so how did you get interested in fencing? And they would say, oh, from watching The Princess Bride, mm-hmm. like yeah. literally every single person, <laughs> you know. And it's still like, you know, when I, I'm at the club and it, on when we have nights that are open battling nights, you still hear people quoting lines of dialogue from that movie to each other on the strip while they're fencing, um, which I think is a testament to how well the movie actually incorporated actual fencing and the training. And I mean, Benetti's defense really does exist. Oh, so what is, what is Benetti's defense? There is a guy, it's, he's a, like a, God, I want to say it's the book was published in like 1485 or something like that. But it's this very, very old manual of sword fighting techniques and stuff like that. And so the the, the names and things like that that they mention in that whole, oh, I'm doing this. Well, you know, assuming the rocky terrain, I would counter with that. All of that is actually taken from the history of fencing. Um, but so I, I just think it's really striking that when I would always want to watch fencing as a kid, like the Olympic Games would come on mm-hmm. and they would always show fencing sort of in the you know, montages, but they would never actually show any actual fencing. And I've been told, I guess, that fencing is not a good spectator sport. But mm. I just think that's interesting that that actual fencing is not considered to be a good spectator sport, but fencing style fighting is such a fixture of movies. Fencing as a sport recognizes that it's not a good spectator sport. And so they they tried, I want to say about two Olympics ago to start making it more spectator friendly. 
unfortunately, the thing they tried, let's put plexiglass into the the masks um, so that you can see the fencers' faces and see the expressions that they're making. And it was a really bad idea because if you got hit in the face with a weapon, the plexiglass popped right out. Um, <sighs> then you were risking serious, serious injury to your athletes. Um, so they thankfully stopped doing that. Uh, if you look at London, they they started to try and make it a, a little bit more TV friendly too. You could see the the big lights so that everyone knows when the touch is being scored. But I think the big thing is if you think about the movie scenes, the fight scenes that you that you watched, those are so very slow compared to the pace of actual modern competitive fencing. You're not going to see the the blade contact back and forth, back and forth. You know, people mm. sort of that that thing where it looks like you're testing your opponent to see what mm-hmm. you're what, what you're doing for sport fencing that's a lot of wasted motion there's no need to do that well yeah it really strikes me watching the sword fighting in movies that they look like they're trying to hit each other's swords rather than hit each other's mm-hmm. bodies absolutely and, uh, and part it, of it's the safety of the choreography too you know if you have a good fight choreographer you can get something that looks very dramatic without actually putting your actors at risk uh-huh and like, but I, I would just expect a real fight to look, just look a lot uglier and the people just, just to be stumbling around more and just confused and the timing to all be off and stuff because they're actually trying to kill each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in preparation for this episode, uh, you know, we wanted to just sort of try to survey, you know, as many sword fighting clips as we could find. And so I just went to YouTube and just started, I mean, I, well, first of all, I, I went on Twitter. And I, and I asked a bunch of people for recommendations. And of course, you know, me and Dave and Kat all had our own recommendations, but I wanted to crowdsource it and see what other people came up with. And so I just put all these things together in a spreadsheet. And then I went on YouTube and help, got my, my intern to help me find stuff on YouTube and just, you know, hunted down as many sword fighting clips as we could find. Um, and so, you know, we put together this playlist and you just, you know, it's like some like four hours of, <laughs> of, of clips of, from various movies. Um, and, you know, just ranging from like the Princess Bride to Star Wars, you know, to, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to Thundercats and, and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. See, John, what was the distribution like of the suggestions? Were there a couple that everybody mentioned or was it more evenly distributed than that? Uh, there was definitely uh, several that everybody mentioned. I mean, it was like, you know, when I asked the question, I almost said, you know, no need to mention the Princess Bride. I've got that <laughs> one covered. Everyone still felt that they need to mention the Princess Bride, and it was getting kind of annoying because it's like, well, duh, of course. But um, you know, and then and a bunch of people mentioned Star Wars, um, the various Star Wars uh, lightsaber duels. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot that were just like you know, single people threw it out there. Like uh, I think like only one person mentioned like Scaramouche. Um, but you know, there's a lot. There was a lot of just sort of singular mentions uh, here and there, and uh, some some puzzling suggestions actually too. But you know, we don't have to talk about those. Okay, yeah, so let's get into the realism then. Uh, so, Kat, what did you think were some of the more realistic uh, clips? Well, I think um, before I actually get into that, there's a difference in is it going to look like a real fight where you actually have a weapon that's an edged weapon and the, the purpose of holding that weapon in your hand is to kill the person standing opposite you versus the realism of is this recognizable to somebody who actually, who fences today? You know, I, I don't, I'm not talking about like historical recreation, the people who practice with broadswords and rapiers and things like that. But if you take somebody who competes and says, okay, does this look like what you do? So is it realistic in that fashion is two different questions. I can't speak to the first as much because I've never actually picked up my sword with the intention of trying to kill someone, tempted as I might have been. <laughs> um, but in terms of like, 
when I'm looking at somebody, can I recognize, okay, are there, are they in lines of attack that I recognize? You know, are they, are they doing motions that I can recognize? Does that look like something that I would see, you know, at practice, you know, is this a drill that my coach would run me through? I am actually going to go back to the princess bride because in that opening sequence, I can actually see, okay, they're, they're on guard in a low seven, you know, and the, the TikTok drill that they do at the beginning, this is something that I've done in practice. And they're actors, they're not fencers, but they don't look like they're goofing it up. So in terms of sport fencing, did any of these movies seem, uh, did any of these movies exceed The Princess Bride? (sighs) I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) The fight choreographer that they used for that, Bob Anderson, is a form, was, unfortunately, he uh, passed away about this time last year, um, but he was a former Olympic fencer. Did he do the fight choreography like on tons of different movies that like we would also know? So like if we watched if we love the Princess Bride fight scenes like that, you know, should we check those out, too? Or I mean, is that like really the only thing that he well, did? Did he also fight? do Star Wars and Lord he, of the Rings? Star Wars. And actually, the scenes in The Empire Strikes Back with Darth Vader fighting Luke Skywalker, he is actually playing Darth Vader at that point. Really? Um, yes. Because Mark Hamill, you know, they they couldn't put him in a fencing mask and it is fairly complicated fencing choreography that they're doing, they needed someone who would be good enough that they could trust him not to hurt their actor. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting, actually, because when I so when I rewatched the uh, the Luke versus Vader duel in Empire, you know, in terms of uh, like analyzing the fight at, you know, looking at it and seeing if they look like they're actually trying to kill each other. Like it didn't actually look to me that much like it was like they were. For instance, like if you compare the original trilogy's uh, lightsaber duels to um, to the to the scene in the Phantom Menace, which is like the only redeeming feature of the movie, but um, <laughs> you know Qui Gon and and Obi Wan versus Darth Maul. I mean, like that's an amazing sequence, and I mean, it's like honestly, like I mean, if you're talking about like the best fight sequences or best sword fighting scenes, you have to talk about that because like it's amazing. Um, and I mean, I don't know, like I you know I don't know how realistic it is or whatever, but I mean, it's 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 like a really good duel. It's like I mean, almost every strike that Qui Gon makes looks like he's trying to kill Darth Maul. Um, you know, and and in regard to Star Wars too, I mean, like in in those uh, in especially the scene in Empire, uh, I, I sort of am inclined to give it a little slack in terms of like the the realism in terms of them trying to kill each other because at that point, like Luke really doesn't have much training um, on how to be a Jedi at all, and so like he's lucky that he's not just cutting his own feet off or something with the lightsaber. <laughs> but and then also like Vader was like, well, why isn't Vader doing better? It's like, well, he's like toying with them, and plus he he knows that's his son, and he doesn't want to kill his son, you know. And so I think there's like a lot of uh, sort of complicated reasons why uh, the fight scene might not look as polished as as we would expect, like a, you know, like a, a like a Darth Vader fight scene to look. Um, right. so. Yeah, it's yeah, it's probably some some of the story and some of just like you can't see anything in that Darth Vader mask and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, another scene that Bob Anderson did is he did the choreography for the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And mm-hmm. I love that opening battle uh, between uh, Jack Sparrow and mm-hmm. cannot for the life of me remember. Will Turner. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're in the Smithy and they've got the poor donkey involved mm-hmm. in everything. And it is not, you know, like none of that stuff would I ever, ever try and do, but mm-hmm. I love that scene because it's so perfectly fits the characters. You know, they are behaving with a sword in hand, like they'd behave as characters. Mm. You know, Jack is still ridiculous. <laughs> But I do think, yeah, that, that for a lot of movies, how it, how cool it looks is more important than how realistic it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. Certainly, like watching the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I mean, that's one of my favorite sword fights, and they're like spinning around and all sorts of stuff. I can't believe you would actually want to do, but it, man, it looks really cool. When we when we were watching the clips, some of the 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 wire foo movies, the House of Falling, how was it House of Falling Leaves? Um, House of Falling Daggers. Falling Daggers, Daggers. Thank you. And Crouching Tiger, um, and the way again, the way you could see how they used those non realistic techniques to really enhance the scene and the drama and things like that, you know, using your sleeves and, and, you know, flying through the air and, you know, all that sort of thing, but it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All three of the, uh, uh, all three of the ones that I had on my list here, you know, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, uh, the house of flying daggers and hero. They're all like just really, really beautiful movies and like, just like stunning and like cinematography. But I mean, like to me, like uh, when I'm watching those scenes, like it really does look like they're trying to kill each other with those, uh, with their maneuvers. So well, but a lot of the stuff like the there's in I forget which movie it was, but there's a part where the guy like jumps up and he has his he's like hanging from his legs upside down fighting like stuff like that <laughs> is just like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a little silly. <laughs> I kind of yeah. wish I could do that, though. <laughs> but, you know, before we get too far afield of uh, the Princess Bride, um, I, I mean, I just wanted to say, like, you know, uh, one of the things I've always loved about that. Uh, the fight sequence, uh, mainly mainly in the Cliffs of Insanity one, but also at the end with uh, Count Rugen. Um, is the way that they incorporate the music into the scene because like the music yeah. is amazing, but then they also incorporate uh, the clangs of the uh, of the swords as they're as they're fighting into the music. And it's like that is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just really adds this whole layer to the scene. And like in a way that like I can't think of any other movie that really managed to make that work. You know, if you watch the commentary, William Goldman says that when he wrote the Cliffs of Insanity fight, he wrote in the script, this is going to be the second best sword fight ever filmed. <laughs> and then when he, when he wrote the Count Rugen fight, he's like, this is going to be the best sword fight ever filmed. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it sounds like general consensus is that that's exactly what they accomplished. Yeah. Um, I would actually say the other way around. I, I prefer the Clips of Insanity fight uh, over the Count Rugen fight. But, I mean, both are amazing. Um, I would say, actually, I mean, we watched about four. and At least I watched. I don't know how much you guys made it through. Yeah. I actually watched about four and a half hours of these clips. Yeah. And I would actually say the only... Only one of them actually looked at all like a real fight to me, mm-hmm. and that was the Rob Roy um, uh-huh. fight. Yes, it was. It was interesting because you have two different weapons and two different fighting styles happening there, also, which was really interesting to watch. I really liked how uh, like Liam Neeson kind of looks like a giant compared to Tim Roth there, and so <laughs> it was, and it was just re- it was really nice to see like this sort of slender, sort of effeminate, princely type of guy. Uh, who looked like he would be afraid to get his hands dirty. It's like, you know, he's like kicking his ass, you know, and it's just it's like, like, it's like skill. It's like the triumph yes. of skill over might. And it was really nice. I mean, ultimately Liam Neeson wins, but, you know, uh, and, and I mean, you know, and he's the hero of the movie, so you would expect him to, but. Well, and, and that, that point that you just made about the triumph of at least the temporary triumph of skill over might is one of the things that um, I find really attractive about using fencing in fiction you don't have to be super strong. Like this is not one of those things where like, if you, you know, if you're not an enormous giant, you can't do this weapon. Um, It's a weapon that rewards training and that rewards being smart. And so that you can actually have a teeny tiny person, you know, just sort of wailing on somebody larger if they've trained um, and things like that. One thing though, is that these movies make it seem like if you're really, really good, you could kill like 50 people. No sweat. There's actually there actually was a clip where that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, what do you think? Cat realistically, the best fencer ever taking on average f- 
fencers, how many could they take on at once? Like no more than just a handful, I would think. That's actually hard for me to think about because it's not the way we train now is not you don't train for melee type fighting. It, I mean, it depends if they're if it's a sort of a chaos situation where you're fighting in battle. Could you take down a lot of people? Sure. If it's you and one sword and 10 other guys, if you're really good, maybe three or four. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you see these you see these fight scenes in movies where, you know, it's like one guy against a ton and, and you know, they're awesome to watch, you know, but of course, like you have to be, oh, this is fantasy land stuff for sure. Like, like, I don't know if you guys got to the, the that Three Musketeers clip uh, from the 2011 version. It's like, you know, that's actually a really entertaining fight sequence, but it's like, oh, my God, so completely implausible, like in every every shot. Well, what what was that? There was the samurai movie where the guy has set up like 50 swords just stuck in different crevices and things and he's just running around and every time one of his swords gets jammed in somebody's bone there's another one at hand <laughs> that he can just keep fighting with them mm-hmm. but you know if you have 50 swords just lying around you want to use them <laughs> yeah i'm um, actually though speaking of uh fight scenes where you know there's one person against a ton of others it's like you know that just makes me think of kill bill um mm-hmm. you know the bride versus the crazy 88s and i mean i mean that's that's an amazing an amazing sequence and uh which is which is kind of funny because uh, it might actually be outdone by the one right after it, which is just the bride versus Orinishi. Um, but I mean, just like the crazy 88 scene is just, it's so insane. And I mean, obviously it's ridiculous. And, and I mean, and it's completely over the top, but it's just like, like what's not to love about like, you know, one woman in a tracksuit fighting 88 dudes <laughs> with swords. It's like, that's amazing. Just no, kicking not, all kinds not of actually, ass. John, there's not actually 88 of them. They just thought that sounded cool. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I mean, there's a ton of them. Um, and, <laughs> But uh, were you joking or? No, that's a line later in the oh, movie. Is, okay, okay, I forgot. I mean, I didn't, like, I, cause I didn't rewatch the whole thing. I only watched the clip. But and so this, and, and that's the scene that um, actually the censors uh, complained about, right? And so like part of it was in black and white. And uh, oh, to, really? to be... what what really struck yeah. me watching re- going back and rewatching it is just how slapstick and cartoony it is. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, I, how can you complain about violence when it's that? I know, silly. You know, you know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, as I was saying, I, I mean, even as much as I love that, it's like I think the the fight with Orinishi after that is actually even better because it's like it's just like masterful filmmaking. It's like regardless of like the fight scene, that is masterful direction right there. The snow and uh, and the music and there's like the sound. There's like that thing with the water where it's like it's just like sort of making noise over in the corner, like when it gets quiet and it's just like this eerie sort of noise. Yeah, man, it's just, it's it's just it's just like breathtaking. See, Kat, did any of these other clips sort of stick with you for any reason? The thing that I thought was really interesting is for a while we had like, especially in like the the Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone era. My God, if you didn't have a staircase in your fight scene, you were really <laughs> wrong. But some of it was also just like some of it. You, I would just laugh. Like there's all this throwing your sword and it sticks <laughs> in the wall, yeah. vibrating back and forth. And I was like, really? In what universe does this happen? I mean, you mentioned the the staircases and stuff, and that really struck me that that it's obviously felt that you can't just that sword play by itself isn't interesting enough to sustain right. a scene for more than like two minutes or something, right? And then you've got to be knocking knocking over <laughs> lamp uh, candelabras and yeah. swinging from curtains and oh god, the this, the scaramouche that we watched, holy yeah. swinging from the stage and knocking <laughs> the the weights and the scenes and through the audience and on the chairs and wow. Yeah, actually, when I was watching that, I was like, you know what? 
this scene is actually kind of a good argument for gun control. I mean, like, look at how much goddamn work it is to kill that guy. Uh, you know, it's like that scene went on forever. It was like 10 minutes long. It's like, you know, if with a gun, it would have been over in two seconds, you know. But, you man, you had to be seriously committed to try to kill that guy. No, you but know, so. John, there was that anime clip we watched where the guy with the sword goes up yeah. against the girl with the two guns and she's somehow yeah, yeah. unable to kill him. So Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that one was pretty silly, but yeah. And there yeah, were a bunch of scenes where somebody, they give their opponent a chance. There's a whole like honor thing going on yes. with sword fighting and too, where somebody is disarmed or they drop their sword or something and the person's like, no, pick it up again. We're, yeah. we're that continuing. still is very much part of the culture, even in the competitive sport. The action stops if someone is disarmed. If you curse during a fencing bout, you can lose a touch. You know, as at least if you curse in a language that the line judge <laughs> actually speaks. You know, you you shake hands both before and after each bout. You salute the judge. You salute the audience. I think that that's interesting. Speaking of rules, because I mean, in, in Gladiator, like whenever you see Gladiator type movies, the the rules are always like everyone's trying to kill everyone, and the last person left standing is the only survivor. <laughs> And there was this really good uh, lecture I listened to called Myths and Realities of the Roman Gladiator by Garrett Fake, and you can find it online. And it sounds like virtually all gladiatorial combat was really very highly, there were tons of rules. There was a referee who would stop the fight, and there were very strict, it was almost always one-on-one, -on -one, and there were very strict rules about which weapons different styles of gladiators could use and what moves they were allowed to do in response to what other moves and stuff like that. It's not at all what you think of from the movies. And actually, uh, speaking of gladiators, I mean, um, uh, I didn't actually think to get any clips from it for the playlist, but um, the but the TV show Spartacus actually has a lot of good sword fighting scenes, and and, and you know I don't know how accurate they are, but I mean they sure are fun to watch. Um, like I, I mean, it would be a spoiler to explain it in detail, but I mean like the end of the first season has like this amazing scene that it's just like it's like I've never seen anything like it, and it's also like one of the most uh, violent hours of television I've ever seen for sure. Although I will warn you that you have to suffer through like maybe three episodes of it being pretty bad. And then it, and then it starts to get good, like both story wise and um, action wise. See, Kat, you, you mentioned that uh, the Zoro really got you into sword fighting in the first place. What did you think of the, the Zoro fight from the movie that we watched? Um, again, Bob Anderson's choreography. Um, ah. Yep. And uh, I, I like that. And Banderas is actually a pretty decent fencer for an actor. Zeta Jones isn't that bad either. So I would really like to correct Catherine Zeta Jones's hand position every time I watch that movie. <laughs> Sorry, it's it. <laughs> uh, but this is a scene that really shows it, it does something. It shows something about them as characters. It makes us like them. It shows. It starts to show that chemistry there. Um, and again, you know, I think I think it was John who mentioned something earlier about this is you know why we show a, a scene with a sword instead of a scene with a gun you can actually do things if you want to have a fight scene um, with swords in hand that you can't, if you're just shooting everyone that you can't, if you're punching people in the face. And so I think it can really be a stylistic choice for somebody who wants to work with these things. I don't, I don't remember the movie that well. So I was watching that scene completely out of context and it was making me, I, I was, it was making me a little uncomfortable that he's cutting her mm -hmm. clothes off and yeah. kissing her apparently against her will and stuff like that. Yeah, there is that bit. You know, it's it's the whole film thing of, well, obviously, these two are supposed to wind up together. And so we, as we watch, are like, well, yeah, you know, everything's going to be fine. It's, yeah, it's those things where you're like, okay, what it's supposed to be doing is showing that he's got, like, this great technique and control with his blade where he can make the cut that goes that close and doesn't actually break the skin. 
and hey, sexy Catherine, awesome. But then there's the whole problem of, yeah, you really shouldn't cut a lady's clothing off of her body. That's not good form. Uh, and then so sorry, you end up with this like really good like sword fight. And then he ends and, and then they, they start kissing it. And and Zoro sticks his tongue entirely down her throat. Like just like, <laughs> dude, Zoro, whoa, back up, man. Like, take it easy. It the ladies a, don't like that. Different clip. I don't remember that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like he, he kisses her and it's just like, oh, my God, dude, like, get you know. Like, leave her tonsils alone. <laughs> um, all right, so what would you guys... Okay, so we, we're all in agreement. Princess Bride, best sword fight ever. What would be your next, like, top five, say, out of the ones we watched? I mean, I would go with Kill Bill, um, either either the Crazy 88s or, and or uh, Orinishi, um, and also the Phantom Menace, uh, Darth Maul versus Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. That, I mean, those are, those are just amazing. Yeah, I would probably follow Princess Bride with, like I said, the Jack Sparrow, Will Turner scene um, from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Um, and then Crouching Tiger, or I think it was a scene from Hero, one of the other Wirefu movies that we watched that was like the the red leaves scene. Oh, yeah. You know, where where the two women are, are fencing and then the, everything just turns, all the leaves turn from gold to red. And I just kind of sat and stared at my computer like, wow, that was yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I would definitely go with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Rob Roy. I actually really like the Vampire Chateau fight in Matrix Reloaded. I've watched that mm. many times. I actually, I, I'm a little, I'm a little torn on that Darth Maul scene. I mean, it's it's cool, but whenever you have somebody like jumping over somebody else's sword, I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, I know what you're saying, and, and I mean, uh, I'm sure Cat could uh, could nitpick a lot of the technical <laughs> stuff, but uh, but I mean, like, dude, it's got a double bladed lightsaber in it. Like, whoa. <laughs> and uh although i have to say like that's some like, amazing technology design that you can like cut that thing in half and then it still yes. works <laughs> um well I, what do we think actually just generally of the idea of swords in futuristic science fiction movies mm -hmm. um i just think that's a really interesting phenomenon it almost seems that goes back to john carter to me mm -hmm. yeah i mean well because there was the whole sword and planet uh subgenre i mean which john carter is certainly part of but I mean, there was, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that dealt with that. Not, not necessarily like, like laser swords, like in Star Wars, but, um, you know, just swords on other planets. Uh, but just, just watching that Phantom Menace clip, right? Where, you know, the big door is open and Darth Maul standing there and the two mm -hmm. Jedi are like, we'll handle this. And I'm like, dude, you've got like 25 guys with guns there. Just, punch them <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you can't block them all. <laughs> I think what that one is, you know, a lot of it is that whole idea of the Jedi, which is like this very ancient order. And again, this, these ideas of like honor and behavior and that gets wrapped up in what kind of weaponry do you use? What kind of fight do you have? And so I think, you know, in the swords in the futuristic movies and in futuristic sci-fi and things like that, you know, I look at, I look at what I have with, with my gear and it's, you know, I'm wired up and I'm electric, you know, I plug in when I fight, except I'm fighting with a sword, which is this really old thing. And so you get this sort of blend of like history and futuristic technology in the same weapon, which if you like telling stories and you like to have symbolism, this is a great thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's, there's just this romance to the sword that just makes it irresistible that people they'll bend every rule of the universe to <laughs> make it, have it make sense for somebody to use a sword. You know, I actually, I really think it's, it's really good in Dune too, where, they have these kind of force fields where the the force field's effectiveness is directly or inversely proportional to the velocity of the incoming projectile. So 
something going as fast as a bullet it blocks, but something going as slow as a sword it doesn't. That's just a genius way of uh, justifying mm-hmm. swords and stuff. Yeah, actually, you know, I mean, I, I I really like the idea of of using sort of old technology like that in in futuristic stuff. But even just to imagine um, sort of an alternate history where, like, you know, gunpowder or whatever or guns have never been invented, or or people just decide they were too barbaric. I, I mean, I kind of like the idea of like taking like say like something gritty and like real, like like the wire or something, and it's, it's like take take out all the guns and like replace them with swords. What I mean, like, one of my favorite series is Roger's Laws, these Amber series, and in that, you yes. know, there are worlds where the laws of physics are such that gunpowder doesn't work, and so mm-hmm. that that's another way of, you know, oh, I gotta have, we gotta have some swords somehow. Um, actually, you know, so one thing I wanted to ask, Kat, so, like, in the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings clip, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Yoen versus the Nazgul, and, and also in Kill Bill, uh, you know, there's a, there's a swordsman who's fighting somebody who has like this giant flail thing, like a, is that a flail with the spiked ball on the end with I the chain? Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, so, so how big of a disadvantage or is there any disadvantage to a swordsman to be fighting somebody who has something like that? If I'm standing there with an actual edged weapon, not my fencing foil or something like mm-hmm. that, and somebody's coming at me with a flail. Um, my fighting technique is to turn around and run as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. because I can't even begin to think of what you would do. All you can do is hope to hold your blade up and get that chain wrapped around your blade. And then neither of you have a weapon, but in terms mm-hmm. of that much extra reach and velocity, I can't get under someone's guard that fast. It, it's great on film. It's absolutely beautiful in terms of would this actually work in real combat? The poor person with a sword would be dead, just mm-hmm. dead. I think that raises the issue of why is it swords? Why are we talking about sword fights rather than flail fights or axe <laughs> yeah. fights? Or I mean, there were some staffs in a lot of these clips, but mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's almost all swords. Well, I mean, it seems like the sword is really the only weapon that you can attack and defend with mm-hmm. in a aesthetically pleasing sort of way. I mean, well, and I, uh, I think what you just said—the aesthetics of it—is a huge reason why it gets brought into film again and again. Um, it's an easy thing to see, and it's an easy thing to put. It's an easy thing to put distance between your actors. You can see faces, you can extend the scene, um, and so there's good reasons to use it. So I think that basically what we're saying is that it's like you know just wide open for somebody to make like the way of the flail, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> all the, the, fla- the all the flail clubs in America, they'll all go see that. It's just yeah, a, absolutely an untapped untapped market. It's a gold mine. <laughs> All right, so uh, any other clips that you guys want to mention before I move on? Yeah, I think we're good. I mean, uh, I mean, did you want to talk about Game of Thrones a little bit with Serio Pharrell? I mean, he's pretty badass. That was actually, I really liked um, the, the the clips that you that you sent were the first ones that I've seen because I, I haven't seen the show on television. I know I'm bad, but I, I loved especially the first scene with Arya when, when the, with the, the the training when he first meets her because it, it just felt very like even though it's not the kind of technique that I'm used to seeing it felt re- very realistic in that he's telling her you know you have to think differently you have to hold this like this you have to put your preconceptions aside and change the way you think to be able to do this well and I thought that was very well done mm-hmm. and then in the second clip he kicks the ass of three armed knights with a wooden sword yes that's pretty great yeah no, those those were great to watch. Yeah, and that's that's straight out of the book. I mean, those scenes mm-hmm. are, are really faithful to yeah. the book. Uh, yeah. and 
are all the better for it. And I, I also really liked in Game of Thrones the fight between um, Bronn and Servardus Egan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where he ends up getting pitched off the, the Eyrie, the really high up castle in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, George R. R. Martin writes awesome fight scenes. Uh, you know, when you're writing, it's, it's, it's hard to write action scenes in fiction because you can't see, yes. you know, what's going on. And I think George R. R. Martin does it so well. You know, by focusing on the emotion and what is the show about the characters and not getting too much into, you know, the person was standing in this stance and then, you know, did mm-hmm. this move, but just showing the key things that set the tempo of the of the fight and that change the situation. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree above Martin for sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that actually uh, used to bug me about the Wheel of Time series when I was reading it. I mean, I, I didn't get very far in it, but I mean... um you know, uh, whenever whenever they describe the action, what I remember is that like he would describe these maneuvers that they did, and it's like I couldn't picture that. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's like it had a cool name, but that doesn't mean anything to me. And so it's like I guess you know I'm supposed to imagine what it is, but it's like it, it didn't really help me. Yeah, the author's like, and then he used Benetti's defense. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, right. I mean, because even even as somebody who you know who does this and who absolutely loves this sport, I don't want to read a scene that's like, well, they both came on guard. And, you know, parry six, counter repost eight, you know, parry, parry, you know, touch. And I'm like, great, thanks. That, you know, I would love to watch that, mm-hmm. but I don't want to read it. It's not interesting to read. And I think your point about what Martin focusing on the emotions and the character development, that's a great way to actually write a fight scene. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, Kat, there's also, in addition to fencing, there's also sort of people who are trying to recreate older styles of sword fighting, like that you would do with a long sword or a two-handed sword or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I had mentioned in a previous episode, I had mentioned this documentary called Reclaiming the Blade. And so uh, since I mentioned that, we got a letter from one of our longtime listeners, Gavin McMenemy, who is one of the moderators of the English, the largest English speaking fencing community online, fencing.net, and the main moderator at fencingforum.com. And he says he's a fencer of 20 ish years experience who has represented my country. And uh, here's what he had to say about Reclaiming the Blade. He says, I I was a bit disappointed to hear you guys mention Reclaiming the Blade. That's not a good documentary, let alone one one which can be relied on to make any kind of assertion about the modern forms. To put it all into perspective, modern fencing is the last true Western tradition of swordplay. All the weapons have a recognizable history with traditions and rules passed down from generation to generation. All other forms, with the exception of one or two others, such as Schlager fencing, are extinct and have been extinct for a long time. What this means is that there's no one alive who can claim to be from a specific tradition or mode of sword use. It's all been made up based on woodcuts and very old treatises from which people infer truth but do not have the cultural underpinnings to appreciate. This means there's a lot of BS out there, and in particular this idea that there are old techniques that would defeat any modern fencer is complete nonsense. If you want to read an interesting history of fencing, check out Richard Cohen's By the Sword. Yes. Or at (laughs) least I agree with him very strongly on the last part. Richard Cohen's By the Sword is a terrific book. Do you agree with him on all the other stuff, too? Um, I don't disagree, but I think that based on from his letter that I may be more willing to give people credit for what they can get out of those old manuals um, and the old diagrams. And it's part of history. And so anything that gets people excited about that and, and asks them to, to look back and to try and recreate these things, even if it's not completely accurate, then great. You know, it, it gets people excited about something new. It gets them thinking about different things. So I'm all for that. You know, do I think that you have somebody in a historical reenactment club could, you know, defeat a modern Olympian? Absolutely not. Hmm. 
I mean, there's, I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch Reclaiming the Blade, but there's a part where one of these recreationist guys describes fighting a Olympic-style fencer, and he says he just gra- grabbed the guy's sword and stabbed him in the head or something. And the guy's <laughs> like, you can't do that. And he's like, oh, I just did it. <laughs> and that's actually what happens at the end of Rob Roy, is he just grabs yeah. his sword and, you know, that there is, I think there is something to be said for tripping and punching and, <laughs> you know, throwing sand in someone's eyes, all this stuff that, you know, you wouldn't actually study as part of the sport, but that you could actually do in a real fight. You, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch this uh, Gladiatoria clip I posted. Don't think that I did. Um, but but so this clip, uh, it shows, it's sort of techniques for fighting in plate armor. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I did see part of that, yes. Where where he actually, I mean, and they actually, they hold the sword with one hand on the grip and then one hand actually on the blade. So you're holding it almost like a spear or something. Hmm. And like the first clip he shows, he's, he actually has the blade, the, the point of the weapon pointed away from his opponent. And then when the guy tries to stab him, he sort of brings the point down and then cuts the guy's... Uh, cuts the back of the guy's knee out with it. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, actually, because I, I wondered uh, at first uh, if he was holding the sword in both hands like that because they were just uh, doing instruction or if it was actually, like they would actually fight like that. Because, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, if, you know, you're wearing plate armor and, you know, you have like a gauntlet on your hand that, you know, you can grab the blade and it's not going to matter. Um, so it was just it was a really interesting. And I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I'd never seen anything like that or, or really even ever heard anybody, you know, talking about that kind of thing. And again, I think that's where, you know, where the history and the research and, you know, can we go back and look at, can we recreate these old styles and how did they actually do these things? You know, what did the armor weigh and how did it fit on the body? And so how could you actually move when you were wearing that? The more we learn about that, the more likely it is that people can borrow those techniques in film and in literature and stuff like that. Because all of a sudden you say, oh, hey, this does actually work on screen. You can do this. It looks great. And people will pay attention to it because it's something new and different that they haven't seen before. Did you guys get a chance to watch the clips I posted from Lindsay? Do I have this Lindy Beige? Lindy Beige, yeah. Did you watch any of those? Oh, those which ones were those? Chance to watch. Uh, a point about swords. Another point. Oh, about oh, swords. oh, right. No, I, I, I didn't get to watch those. Okay, so, so he has this series of videos. I don't know who the guy is, but he seems to know a lot about swords anyway. But he, uh, the first video I watched, it's called A Point About Swords. You could just Google, you know, search for that on YouTube. And he says that, you know, when he, he has a whole bunch of swords and he draws them all and they make almost no n- noise when you mm-hmm. draw them. And he's like, mm-hmm. you notice it doesn't make a like, ka-ching! Yeah. Sound. <laughs> and, uh, and he just goes through this. It's this really funny rant about how that makes no sense that a sword would go, ka-ching! When you pull it out <laughs> of the, the scabbard. But he also, he has a thing about how it's basically impossible to pull a sword. If you have a sword on a scabbard over your shoulder, it's basically impossible to pull it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how people say that, you have to reach across your body to pull a sword from a scabbard, but actually you can do it either way. And what was the, he has? Oh, the one about pommels. He says that people will say that a pommel is, is supposed to be really heavy to act as a counterbalance. And he just talks about how that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. That He goes through all these sort of physics reasons why that would just be bad. I can't remember which clip it was in, but there was, uh, there was a clip that uh, actually showed somebody fighting with two weapons. And that was actually something I was wondering about, too, as far as um, as sort of like the reality versus the fiction, uh, because like it seems like a really cool thing to be able to fight with two swords. And, and yet we don't see it very often in movies. My guess, and this is totally a guess, is that it becomes a choreography issue and it becomes a OK. So if I've got like a longer weapon, like a rapier style and then like a short sword or a dagger, 
the reason that I've got that other one is because they want you to be able to do more close up work, you know, so like when you've got the guys and they're both like holding their their swords and their faces are right next to each other and they're sort of snarling at each other or something like that. You want you want something that looks like that, except then you have the risk of now you have two sharp pointy things pointing at your actors, very expensive faces. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. that's not the best idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, uh, Dave, you you may remember this from the Ultimate Games, but I remember uh, that was the first time I think I'd actually encountered, uh, you know, two weapon fighting. Um, but they had a, they had a weapon called like a main gauche or something. It's like G A U C H G, and I and, and I'm not really sure what that is. I think is, is it like a sort of like a small sword or no, it's it's like a dagger with a really long hilt, so you would be mm-hmm. able to block with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, it's like yeah, so it's like a defensive weapon. But I mean, I just I, I thought that was really interesting, and, and I mean, and again, like I you know I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen anybody fight with something like that. So yeah, or even or in a, in movies like even just a shield. I mean, mm-hmm. there was that clip from uh, the Thirteenth Warrior. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the only clip in four and a half hours where someone used a shield. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, Yoan has one when he fights the Nazgul. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Which he also destroys with a flail. <laughs> yes. Uh, right away. But yeah, is that just is that just wimpy to have a shield? It just doesn't look good. I mean, because most I think most soldiers, if you had one, you know you'd have a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. I think that was actually the standard way you would fight. But and, and I don't I don't remember historically when it became less common. You know, and I also think, I, you know, some of it is, you know, the, the clips that we saw, a lot of them were like, this is a duel that two noble people are having that, you know, happened over dinner or something like that. And so you're not in full battle dress, battle armor, you're not carrying your shield around, but you always have your sword because that's the sort of social class that you come from. And so it's always with you. And so then you can you can defend the honor, you can jump up on the dinner table and then, you know, kick the guy who's insulted your king or your wife or whatever. All right, well, what did you guys think of uh, Neil Stevenson's Clang project? I guess we should probably say what it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so Neil Stevenson, who we interviewed, I don't know, last year sometime, he, has, he, he, he says that you know, he'd really like a, a sword fighting game where you're actually holding some, something that you swing around. You're not just pressing buttons to attack. And he's also very interested in recreating these medieval fighting techniques and stuff. Uh, he and a bunch of other authors have sort of got, been getting together and writing stories you know utilizing some of these old fighting techniques and practicing them and stuff like that and so uh so yeah he did a kickstarter and the kickstarter was successful to fund a prototype of this project so it's uh it's in development and uh looks really cool to me you know i think it looks amazing um and uh i have to say they had me at guitar hero with swords you know <laughs> uh because it's like what yes give me two <laughs> um, but uh, I, I did actually kind of wonder, though, as, as I was watching the video, if it was going to end up more like Guitar Hero with swords or more like Rocksmith with swords. Because like Rocksmith, so Guitar Hero is a game where you have like a fake guitar controller and it has like five buttons on the fret uh, bar and then it has like a little strummer. So it's not very realistic in terms of playing a guitar. Uh, Rocksmith is a game that's like Guitar Hero, except that you actually plug a real guitar into your Xbox and then it teaches you how to play guitar while playing it while like sort of learning it in a sort of game environment and so i kind of wondered uh would clang be more like guitar hero or be more like rocksmith i mean obviously you're going to be playing a game but would learning how to play the game actually transfer over better to actually learning sword fighting techniques or would it all be just nonsense like guitar hero is for playing actual guitar I don't know, but the thing that I really liked was that it looks like they're trying to build in different options so that you have, you know, weapon choices and fighting style mm-hmm. choices and things like that. And that was just, you know, because as he's, you know, as he said, you know, what you normally get is 
you press a bunch of buttons and it's nothing like actually wielding a sword and watching like the demonstrations that they had, you know, where they've got sensors on people and, and, and sensors on the actual weapons to sort of recreate what would this look like and how would it hit and everything else. And just like all the geeky little parts in my brain are going, yes, <laughs> yes, this is wonderful. Do more. Yeah, actually, I have to say, though, the game looks kind of intimidating to learn, but like in an awesome way, you know, I mean, I, uh, I, I'm just like watching it. I'm like, oh, my God, this looks awesome. But like, will I ever be able to learn how to play it? You know, well, that's that's what's so frustrating about sword fighting is that it's actually hard. You know, <laughs> like, I think you you grew up reading fantasy novels. And you're like, I've read so many fantasy novels. I would just be awesome with a sword. And you're like, oh, wait, it actually takes like 10 years to learn how to use yeah. this. That sucks. Yeah. I will just say, though, you know, it's the kind of sport where you can pick it up at any age. Mm-hmm. And I encourage this very much, you know, that it's a lot of fun. It it makes you think in interesting ways. And it's not easy to get good. That sounds deceptive. But, you know, you don't have to be like, it's not like gymnastics, where if you don't start when you're three, then forget it. Mm-hmm. So if if you think you could do it, I'll help you find a club. Yes, I mean, how how do you find a club? I mean, say someone's listening to this and they're like, "Oh, I'd like to learn how to fence," but they have no idea what to do. Like, what do they what do they do? Um, go to the U.S. fencing website, um, which I believe is usfencing.org. They actually keep a list of all clubs that are that are registered with USFA, the United States Fencing Association, and they'll let you know places in your area. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, go check it out, see if you get along with the coaches, see if you get along with the other people at the club, but you can start anywhere. I remember when I was competing in Texas, there was a guy in, you know, in his seventies who is still showing up for tournaments and and doing well. All right, cool. So I think we should probably start wrapping this up. I guess just uh, finally, Kat, you just want to say, do you have any uh, stories coming out or anything that people should go check out? Um, I have a story in one of John's upcoming anthologies, Osri Imagine, that's coming out, I believe, February 6th. Is that right, John? Uh, February 26th. 26th, excuse me. Um, and then I will also have a flash fiction, flash fiction piece in the February issue of Apex. So that's what I've got coming up soon. So what's your Oz story about? It's called A Tornado of Dorothy's, and it's about what happens when you decide maybe you don't want to go home again. And people can find you on Twitter at cat with sword, right? Yes, they can. All right, great. So I think we'll wrap things up there. So uh, cat, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This was so much fun. And thanks again to Jane Yolen for being our guest today. And thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes lately, including, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this Chapo Jujuacac. Uh, We're currently up to 230 ratings on iTunes and 98 written reviews. So if you just go get a friend to write one review and then add another one yourself, you could be number 100. Also, big thanks to Tian Nguyen, who just became subscriber number 39. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. And remember to nominate all your favorite works for the Hugo Award. Geeks Guide is eligible for the Best Related Work category. I'm eligible for Best Editor. And all of the original fiction I published this year in my anthologies, or in Lightspeed or Nightmare, are all eligible in either the novelette or short story category. For more information, visit johnjosephadams.com and click on blog. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or 
davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.